Welcome to the Cherry Hill Sermon Podcast. The following message is part of a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. I love it. I love to see people like crossing aisles and saying hi to each other and the the welcome lingers a little bit longer. I, I love that as we're a church family. So we're in a series in the Gospel of Luke. We've been there since January 3rd of this year. And today we come to the last week of that series before taking a break for the summer. We'll come back to it in September. We've been spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. And in particular, the last two weeks, we've wrestled with the question, who is this man? Who who is this Jesus that we follow? And last week, Steve ended the services right before we sang together by reading the Nicene Creed. I'm grateful for the creeds of the church. And so we read that together. So I thought this week we would pick up where we left off last week in declaring who this man is. So this comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Would you read these next few screens with me? This is who Jesus is. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's who this Jesus is. He holds everything together. He holds the universe together with the word of his power. And the reason we have breath in our lungs and the reason we're gathered here this morning is because he's allowed it. This is not the kind of person we ask into our lives and say, will you be my assistant? I've heard it said that if you're asking Jesus to be your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat. This is not the type of person we say, I'd be happy to have a relationship with you as long as you can do these three things for me. This is not the type of person we invite into our lives and say, I'll call you when I need you. But for many of us, myself included, this is what we have made of Jesus' command to follow me. We have minimized Jesus' invitation to follow into saying a simple prayer one time. Or if you're like me, when I was young, you made a decision and you got a get-out-of-hell-free card. And it didn't change the way you lived. And that is not what Jesus calls us to. And so my prayer for us today is that we'll be able to answer the question, if you're following in your notes, what does Jesus mean when he says, follow me? What does he mean? What's he talking about? And if you're following in your notes, it's the greatest invitation we'll ever receive. 
Jenny's already spoken to that. It is the greatest invitation we'll ever receive. It's also the most challenging. So to look at what follow me means, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57. This is where we've been camped out all year. It's in the New Testament. It's the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to take a black Bible from the seat back in front of you. These are really tricky, hard verses. And it would probably help you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you to mark up or take notes on or to read. If you're using a black Bible, it can be found on page 724. And if you don't own a Bible, take that home with you, please. So Luke chapter 9 beginning in verse 57. And just so everybody knows where we are, last week Steve taught on the transfiguration where we saw that the fullness of God was revealed in Jesus. And so this week, Jesus and his disciples are now on the road to Jerusalem. And I'll read verse 57. I'm going to invite you to join me in reading the first gray box on your notes in just a second. The verse starts with, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, and then would you read with me, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This guy is eager to follow Jesus. Maybe too eager. Maybe he's the person who is described in Luke 8 as one of the soils who accepts the message eagerly but not deeply. I don't know. Jesus knows this man. He knows him better than he knows himself, just like he knows us better than we know ourselves. And Jesus' response to this eager follower is a bit shocking. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What? Like, why wouldn't Jesus say, great, follow me? And if you're following in your notes, it's because Jesus wants this man to know what he's getting himself into. Jesus wants this man to know what he's getting himself into. It is hugely important to know where Jesus is going Six verses before this story takes place, we read that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. There's been a shift in the book of Luke, and Jesus has now started his last march, his death march, toward Jerusalem where he'll be crucified. And Jesus wants people to know, if you're going to follow me, you need to know what type of savior I am. Jeff taught on this two weeks ago in great detail, but Jesus is saying it again. If you're following in your notes, we need to know what type of Savior we're following. We need to know. It's like Jesus says, before you sign up to follow me, you've got to know, my kingdom is not of this world. I don't have a home. I don't even have a bed. I'm not going to save this world through winning political elections or through winning battles. I'm not looking for earthly power or popularity. I'm going to save the world by being arrested, humiliated, condemned, crucified, and rising from the dead. Is that the type of savior you want? Because I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. Do you want to follow a savior like that? Jesus wants us to count the cost before following him. This isn't unique to Luke. 
This isn't unique to this story. In Luke 14, 28, and in other places in the Bible, but in Luke 14, 28, Jesus builds on this idea by giving us two picture stories. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish it. Second picture story. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. According to those stories, Jesus, Jesus is saying following me means counting the cost. It means knowing what you're getting yourself into. It means following Jesus isn't just intellectual assent. It's rather a fundamentally new way of life that we turn from our sin, we repent of our sin, we turn towards Jesus because we want him more than our sin, and we walk in a new way of life. And we need to count the cost of that. The second thing following Jesus means is making him our priority. And we see this in the next two stories. It begins in verse 59. Would you read this in the second gray box in your notes with me? He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Continuing in verse 60, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now Jesus has gotten a lot of bad PR over his answer here. Because it sure looks like Jesus is saying, you can't go to your dad's funeral. But it's fairly clear from Jewish law that if this young man's father was actually about to die, he wouldn't be on the road with Jesus. The law was that you had to be there at the bedside. And notice this little thing. This is so interesting. The man didn't say his father was dead, only let me go and bury my father. So it's much more likely that what this man is saying is, I would like to sign on with you totally, Jesus. I would like to make a complete commitment to you. I'd like to permanently belong to you. But first, I'd better wait till my father dies. Jesus is not teaching that people should forsake responsibilities to family, but he's giving a command in light of the man's real motive, which was, I'd better wait. I'd better wait. And then Jesus finishes the conversation by saying, let the dead bury their own dead. That's just kind of weird. Like, he he can't be talking literally, right? Because physically dead people can't bury physically dead people. So what he's saying is, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. But if you are in Christ, you are alive in Christ, you are with me, I'm your first priority. Now go with urgency and proclaim the kingdom of God. The good news that Jesus entered the world inviting us to do life with him. That will be your first priority if you really want to follow me. The third man we're introduced to illustrates the exact same point just made. Would you read this with me in the third gray box on your notes? Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. 
And then Jesus responds to him in verse 62, if you're following in your Bibles, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The third guy is essentially saying the same thing as the second guy. I'd like to follow you, but not yet. I'll be back. And to this, Jesus responded with an image that everybody in the crowd would have known. In those days, if you were plowing, you only made one furrow at a time. And that meant you could never take your eye off the field because if you took your eye off the field, it could destroy the entire base of your planting or worse yet, you'd hit a rock and it would destroy your equipment and you could no longer farm. And when you're a poor farmer, like most of these people, that's a significant problem. Just like the second man, Jesus is telling this would-be follower, I've got to be your first priority. I want to spend a little time talking about these two guys because a couple of the words they use are fascinating. And I'm, I'm a word geek, and knowing the depths of these words bring this story to life. So notice both of these guys use the expression, what do they call Jesus? Lord If you're following in your notes, Lord, both men call Jesus Lord, which means owner, ruler, master over all, one who has authority over, one who has legal power over. So so just picture it, right? These guys come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, my Lord, you are the one who owns me. I want to give my life to you so that you can have authority over everything in my life. And then do you see what both of them say immediately after calling Jesus Lord? But first, if you're following in your notes, both these men proceed to tell Jesus something else is more important. I mean, Jesus is showing the irony here, right? My Lord, my master, my authority, you own me. I belong to you. I'll do anything for you. I permanently am yours. But first, there's something more important. It just doesn't make sense. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is, I must be your first priority. And what we need to know today, friends, if you're following in your notes, Jesus cannot be our Lord if there are any but first. If we have any qualifications or any conditions attached to following Jesus, then we're our own king. And we are our own lords because we're in a position to say yes or no to obey, whether it's practical for us. We're still in the driver's seat. So if you're here this morning, every person who has ever lived has struggled with this. We're all on a level playing field. There was a man that lived in the 300s. His name was Augustine. He is most well known for being the Bishop of Hippo in Northern Africa. And he is viewed as one of the most important church fathers in all of Western history. But before he was Bishop, St. Augustine was living with a woman, a mistress, And he went to hear another preacher, the great Ambrose of Milan, preach. And he was convicted by the teaching on the holiness of God and the Ten Commandments. But Augustine loved this woman. So he went home and he prayed one day. And it's come down to us in history because this prayer is immortal. And his prayer was, if you're following in your notes, O Lord, make me good, but not yet. 
oh Lord, make me good, but not yet. Famous prayer prayed by Saint Augustine and millions of us have prayed it since. Lord, I want to follow you, but I'm in a career right now that for me to advance necessitates looking the other way when a lot of unethical things are happening. Oh, Lord, make me good, but not yet. Lord, I really want to follow you, but if I sold out, if I decided that in every situation to obey you, to put you first without conditions or qualifications, people might look at me like I'm weird and I would lose some popularity. Lord, make me good, but not yet. I want to follow you, Lord. You're the master of my life, but I'm in a relationship right now, and I'm not sure that relationship fits your standards when it comes to sexuality or who I'm supposed to marry, or it means I'd have to move out from my girlfriend. Lord, make me good, just not yet. Lord, I, I want to follow you, but I don't want to forgive the person who hurt me. I want to stay angry a little longer. I want to hold the grudge a little longer. I want to be bitter a little longer because it feels good and I'm right. Oh, Lord, make me good, but not yet. And here is why that is such a dangerous place to be. If you're following in your notes, whenever we say, but first, the but first is the real Lord. The but first is our real Lord. If we say, I'll follow you but first, what's on the other side of but first is the real non-negotiable. It's the master. It's the real Lord. It's the real thing we're following. And Jesus in that situation is just a means to an end. And if you're following in your notes, Jesus is not the means to an end. He is the end. In him, we have everything we need and everything we want. So the question is, what is our response to this invitation? The greatest invitation we'll ever receive, but also the most challenging. I want to go back to where we began. What does it mean when Jesus says, follow me? And if you're following in your notes, follow me equals my life is a blank check. My life is a blank check. It it means offering your life to God, all of it, a surrendered life, your family, your future, your money, your relationships, your sexuality, your plans, your desires. It means offering everything to God and saying, it's yours. Whatever you want to do with my life, you can. My life is a blank check before you. You own everything, Lord. What do you want? to do with it. So we've provided you with blank checks on your seat this morning. I'm reading an amazing book right now about the power of habit and how habits order our desires. What we form habits doing helps us form what we love. And so we've provided you with this check because we thought it might be a helpful way to have something tangible to use this summer as we pause this series. That, that every morning you might be able to wake up and pray, Lord, my life is a blank check. I offer it to you today. How do you want to use it? What 
do you want to do? And there are several groups of people this blank check can have significant meaning for this morning. If you're here and you're not a believer, I am thankful you're here. I want you to hear this. This is what you're invited to. It's a great invitation, but it has high challenge with it. But this is what you're invited to, and I need to say I'm sorry, because many times us Christians haven't been very good about living out what it means to follow Jesus, and you haven't seen a good example. But this is what it means, and this is what you're invited to. And as we prepare for a time of communion in a few minutes, I want to encourage you to talk to God during that time and name reality. Just name it. Tell him where you are, what your struggles are, why you can't or don't want to pray this blank check prayer. But I'm glad you're here. So you know what you're called to. It's something so much better than I could even describe to you. A second group is you're a believer, but if you're honest, as you've been listening, you've thought of your own but first, and I don't know what they are for you, but we all have them. And so in the next few minutes, I want to encourage you to name reality that you would tell God where you are and what but first you're struggling with. Don't condemn and shame yourself. God doesn't guilt us. That's the voice of the enemy. If you are feeling guilt right now, that is the enemy. That is the devil. That is not Jesus because Jesus doesn't peddle in guilt. He peddles in conviction that's clean and we know it when we hear it. So if you're here this morning and you're a believer and you have some but first, just name those. And let me say something else. If you're a follower of Jesus and right about now you're worried you might not even be saved anymore. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about desire. I'm not talking about daily struggles. I'm talking about if something is more important than Jesus to you habitually. And this blank check life is what Jesus means when he said, take up your cross daily and follow me. This is an everyday struggle to keep Jesus first, and our struggles are part of our journey. But it's good to pay attention to any of the but firsts in our lives. And here's what I found is the best way to determine if you have any but firsts in your life. And you may just want to write this off to the side of your notes. I should have put it in. I've noticed this in my own life. A but first would be anything you are unwilling to. To pray. What are you unwilling to pray? Is there anything that you are unwilling to say to God, right? God, do you want me to blank? Because we don't really want to hear the answer to what God's going to say. That would be a but first. Some of you know that um, about eight weeks ago, I got back from Ethiopia. My family and I lived there for a month while we finalized the adoption of our little boy. And God revealed to me while living uh, in that country in Eastern Africa, we lived on a missionary compound with uh, about four other missionary families. And God revealed to me a but first as we lived there. And the, the but first that I did not want to pray was God, 
do you ever want me to move to a country like this to advance the gospel among people who have never heard? I don't want to know the answer to that. I don't know what the answer is, but I don't want to know the answer. Because my but first would be, but first, God, I really like Springfield. But first, God, I really love my family. But first, God, I really love my church. But first, God, I really love comfort. And so that's just a a but first that I need to pay attention to. We probably all have but firsts that we're going to struggle with daily to make him the Lord of our life. Then there's a last group of people that I want to offer direction to this morning. I say this with absolute humility, so please, I I pray that you hear this with love compelling what I'm going to say. No condemnation or judgment, but with extreme concern. You're here this morning and you call yourself a Christian and you are not. You are fooled. This is what keeps pastors up at night. You claim to be a follower of Jesus, but your life looks no different from the rest of the world. You call yourself a Christian, but there are habitual things more important in your life, and the decisions you make are more determined by the world than what by God's word says. And you know it. You just come to church and you check it off or you play the game. And you're not a follower of Jesus. And so during this time of communion, I encourage you to name reality along with all of us because you can either name that reality now or you can name it when it's too late. Tell God where you are and why it's hard for you to offer your life as a blank check. Maybe this is the day you take communion for the first time with new eyes and a new heart, but please hear my concern. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. This is too important of an invitation to pass up. If you're following in your notes, the price to follow Jesus is great. The prize is worth it. The price to follow is great. The prize is worth it because the the prize, friends, the treasure is Jesus. And the treasure is that when we repent and we place our trust in what Jesus did on the cross, we are made right before God and the deepest desire of our heart can be met in the forgiveness of sins and we are reconciled to God forever. So to close, there's a story in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. It's a story of buried treasure. It's a one-verse story in the Bible. I love it. It's a beautiful story. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had, and he bought the field. So can you imagine this, friends? This, this man finds the treasure in a field. And he, he buries it again. And then he goes and he finds the owner of the field. And he says, hey, owner, this is all my money. Everything I have, I'm buying this field with it. I have to imagine the owner is like, what are you doing? Why would you give away everything you have for this treasure? And I just imagine if the guy says, I got a hunch. Jesus is the treasure, and it's the greatest 
prize we'll ever have in our lives. The price to follow is great, and the prize is worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. But are we going to offer our lives as a blank check every day? That's the question. It's worth it. Would you pray with me? God, here we are, and we find ourselves before you, a holy God who is totally other, but you still came down and made your dwelling among us. And you wanted us so badly that you gave your one and only son who lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sin so that when we trust in him, we can live with you forever. Thank you for that invitation. Thank you, Jesus, that you call so many people to you with the words, follow me. I pray today we would have an accurate understanding of what that means, and I pray for our faith family, God, that we would be blank check people that stand before you and say, here I am. Take it. Take it, God. My life's a blank check. God, we cannot do that on our own. We need your help and the help of the Holy Spirit. So would you speak to us this morning as we take communion? Would you speak to every person in this room? Would you show us if there are any but firsts? taking precedent over calling you, Lord. Jesus, thank you for your invitation. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we move into a 